This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. I think this is one of those things that has evolved uh, school-specific. What works best at one institution may not be the best fit for another. And golly, the GFA gives us opportunities to look at how things are done differently. And sometimes it's uh, worthwhile blowing up an old process and starting over. And I finally said, well, how come we don't have HR at this table? And just the Mm -hmm. mere fact of inviting them to the table, both sides were like, the faculty had gained a new appreciation for why this is that way. And then HR had a, oh, oh, now we get it. Okay. So it Mm -hmm. really was just dumbfounded to think of everything comes back just down to basic communication and just hearing each other and dispensing with some of these assumptions we make and checking those assumptions. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. Today, we get to talk to Dr. Jeanette McConnell Shorey II, or Jan, as we all know her, the woman who is absolutely incapable of a frown. She's always wearing a smile. She is the Associate Provost for Faculty at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Welcome to the podcast, Jan. Thank you so much. Oh, it's lovely to get to talk with you, Kim. Thank you for this invitation. Well, uh, you are, again, one of one of the folks that we all admire and look up to and help build the GFA. So we want to learn from you, and I'm really looking forward to our talk today. Why don't you start us off with the evolution of your office? I know you were an East Coast girl, and then you ended up down in Arkansas. So how, do, how does one go about building a brand new office of faculty development? Well, um, this one... It's actually an office primarily of faculty affairs. Uh, It started in 2004. My own story was that I was an East Coast girl for a long time. I practiced within the Harvard system for 20 years and was a residency program director. And I had grown up in Arkansas from age seven until I went to college. And I never expected to be back here. But um, Arkansas is a well-kept secret. And I guess I'm now that nationally. It's a great place. Uh, I never expected to be back here, uh, but life happens when you make other plans. I re-met my high school sweetheart, and he was worth saying, goodbye, Harvard. Hello, Arkansas. So I moved back to Arkansas and needed to reinvent my professional self. was very fortunate to work at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, where I've been ever since then. I started in practice. Uh, I'm a general internist. And uh, not long after I started practicing, the dean, then uh, Dr. E. Albert Reese, called and said, would you come help us think about faculty? Dr. Reese uh, served on the Council of Deans in the AAMC and was just hearing about this uh, relatively new concept called an Office of Faculty Affairs, and he had a notion that uh, his College of Medicine needed one, so he asked if I would take on the duties of being the Associate Dean for Continuing Medical Education and Faculty Affairs. Uh-huh. So the first step on the faculty at the AAMC to begin to learn from other people around the country who were already uh, establishing offices of faculty. Gosh, I met such 
a collection of wonderful people, all of whom were dedicated to of their faculties, uh, individual faculty members and then groups of faculty. So it was a great set of lessons, and uh, it became pretty clear to me early on that while I used to take care of population of people I called my patients, this was going to be a great transition to taking care of a special population of people called the faculty. Right. Yeah. So what I inherited was a small office that ran the continuing medical education programs at the College of Medicine and two people who supported the women's faculty development office of the College of Medicine. And that was focused on faculty development. So uh task was understand what those two offices were doing, total staff of five, mm. add me, six, and uh, then figure out what faculty affairs was. Got it. Truly, um, the group of people who were in the forum on the faculty were my lead teachers. Um, Diane McGrain was the person within the AAMC who helped shepherd that organization, Diane actually sought out a newbie, someone who didn't have experience in faculty affairs be on the first forum on the faculty steering committee uh, because she appreciated that the needed there was need for the voice of inexperienced associate deans in that group to 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 say quite frankly, wait a minute, I don't understand or yeah. what's that policy about. Sure. So I had the good fortune to be that person. And that meant that for a week in January, for many years, I sat with people like Valerie Williams, Steve Lodgwick, Karen Novielli, Lois Geist, Mary Moran, Kevin Grigsby, and Tom Viviano, names that most GFAers know. Oh, yeah. uh, so I got great lessons early on from people who were a few years ahead of us in doing this work. Oh, wow. I, can't, I cannot imagine being in a room. It's, it's like, to me, the people who like superheroes or Marvel comics, to me, that's just kind of like the, the hall of justice, like all the superpowers and all the, all the, like, yeah, the heroes, the Oscar award winners in one room. What, wow. To, to be a fly on that wall, to capture all that, that wisdom and that energy and that, the vision to make this what it is today. I think I, that's just amazing that you were there. I wish I would, you know, wish we could have somehow documented some of those early conversations and brainstorm sessions. They were really terrific, and, and I felt like a, a sponge, you know, just yeah. learning from every one of them, and that's how it happened. Uh, and then uh, lots of the group on faculty affairs appreciate that that group transitioned uh, largely with Tom Vigiano's leadership into the group on faculty affairs, yeah. uh, followed by Valerie Williams uh, helping giving giving this shape and structure and... Uh, and here we are now. Yeah. Keeps evolving and improving. I think that's also what there's something about this history being somewhat new and the fact that, um, you know, you're still around and you, and you come and you participate and we see you and, and the, the people's names float around and people whisper and point and, oh, that's so and so, that's so and so. It, that's, I think, also what part that, that lends to us feeling like such a, a family. And maybe that's just me, but I, every time I go to the professional development conference, it is, 
It's unlike any other professional conference I've ever attended in my field in gerontology or sociology, where I really feel a, a closer connection, if you will, like the, the generations aren't so, so deep that I feel not like I feel disconnected from, from the roots. You know, I, I really feel like that's, we're, we're small enough and a close enough family that everybody's still there and, and the, the lineage is, is still not so deep that it's, it's kind of unknown to you or feels so old fashioned or so in the, in the, in the far distant, you know, history that it's not relevant. So that's one of the things why, what I, I, that I love about that conference and about our group is that we're all still kind of like here in the game and knowing each other. So I think that's what makes our group so unique and so special. Oh, I agree with you, Kim. And, and I, I hope the group preserves that sense. Um, it may be that some of us old types uh, won't always be remembered by name, but I think the fact that there's likely only one associate dean for faculty affairs or faculty development in each college, hopefully flanked by a good team, some people have bigger teams than others, depending on how much their college values the office. Um, but we have to learn from each other at the GSA because there isn't anybody in the home court right. who does the work. So I think there's something about the nature of how we share policies, procedures. How do you do that? What? Oh, you're doing that. Oh, tell me about that. Yeah. It, the, the nature of sharing the openness for me, has been some of the best of academia. Okay, yeah. we did this. Here's our evidence. What do you think? Yeah. Look at it. Take it. Use it. Um, I, I, we, we just help each other. And uh, for me, that's been a treasure in the organization in the many years I've been part of it. You're so, so right. And and beyond... And, and more than that, I just... I feel like sometimes... Exactly what you said, Jan, that we are oftentimes the only ones or they're like at Hopkins, we have a couple of bits and pieces of other associate deans for education, for professional development, for clinical affairs. So we have other sort of titles that are in this dean role, but mm -hmm. I'm like the only person doing this, you know, most almost full time. And it's a lonely endeavor. Mm -hmm. And and I really, you know, you go all year long and you're just in, in the weeds and just really, you know, just, just kind of like stuck in your own place. And you start to feel, at least I do, I tend to be, feel isolated and lonely and, and just kind of wondering, what am I doing? Am I, am I making an impact? I, I oftentimes every day, Dan Shapiro, when we, he was in the podcast, he's like, I'm confused every day. And I'm like, yeah, not only am I confused every day, I'm frustrated every day. I feel like I'm failing, like I'm not doing enough. You know, we have almost 5,000 faculty and I feel like I can't possibly, every day somebody asks me, why are we doing this, that, and the other? And I feel, oh no, what's wrong? Well, I'm not, I'm failing and I feel like I'm mm. not, um, doing all I can. So I think part of this, you know, if you will, burnout or a sense of, you know, maybe not feeling like you're contributing much or having value. When you go to these conferences, you really, it shores up your self-esteem and you do really feel like, ah, here are my people. Here's my 
my mm-hmm. in group. They, they get me. They understand me. We, right. we all share these same frustrations and fears and, and self doubt and, and confusion. And so when you get to that place every year, it really, it validates me and it really reminds me and kind of, um, nourishes me so that I can go, mm-hmm. come back here to Hopkins and say, okay, Kim, when, when you're feeling doubt, um, just remember, you know, all, I've got peers all across North America who are having the same feelings. And so that is, is what makes it special, even more special that it, it we shore each other up. And I'm, you know, as I mentioned, this, this podcast, I'm hoping is one way that we can kind of keep in touch with each other and build community and, and remind each other and remind ourselves why we're doing what we're doing because you're so right, Janet. It's, we're, we're alone. Many of us are mm-hmm. alone, the lone person in our colleges doing this work or at least thinking about this work for the majority of our time. Mm. I, I'm very grateful that you're doing this, Kim. I think there are two things that the GFA's done for me and you've helped me focus them in just your words now. One is the psychosocial support for doing the work. And the other, for me early on, was beginning to understand the scope of what faculty affairs and faculty development could be. It's really the great, huge, long list of the kinds of work that goes on in AAMC member schools across the country. And I've been interested to notice that the old joke we used to make about when you've seen one faculty affairs office, you've seen one faculty affairs office. Right. It's still true, mm. perhaps a little less so now than it was in 2004, because we've all been learning from each other and adopting practices done at different schools. But still, the work of the faculty affairs and faculty development teams have to be customized to the local environment. How much is are the groups of department chairs taking care of promotion and tenure versus does that need to be done centrally? How much faculty development is done in departments? What should be done centrally? So I think each school has to figure out the map, but golly, I couldn't have understood the breadth of the map without colleagues at the GFA telling me what they did in their school. So I, in the, um, orientation session that that used to be part of each GFA meeting, I I went to that for the first three years taking notes. uh, And and after about year three, I thought, okay, I understand the breadth and depth of what my office could be. Now I need to figure out what it really should be back at UAMS. I want to just hear anything and everything. This could go on for hours. So you just keep talking, Jan. I want to hear everything you have to say. (laughs) You're kind. Our journey in building a faculty affairs office really had to start from scratch. Uh, We had the CME office, so that's another branch that has evolved uh, wonderfully. The faculty affairs office started supporting our Women's Faculty Development Caucus, and I'm really proud to say that that caucus is celebrating its 30th year of existence this year. 30? Wow. 30 years. I'm proud to say the group won one of the first AAMC awards for women in medicine and science that uh, went to a group. And the magic of the Women's Faculty Development Caucus is that it has, it's populated by all the women on our faculty. It was initially born in the College of Medicine, but it now welcomes uh, 
women faculty from all of our five health professions colleges. And that's uh, a group of people who volunteer. And uh, it serves a networking function, a mentoring, formal mentoring function, and really a think tank uh, for ideas for what is now our faculty affairs office. The uh, structure, it has six different working committees, one on mentoring, one that helps with recruitment, one on professional development, one focused on women in training. So the trainees in our five health professions colleges, one on salary equity, and one on research. Those groups are now staffed by members of my office and the faculty affairs. It's, it's the women faculty who have the ideas, and the staff from the faculty center are the glue and the engines that help make things happen, because Obviously, the the women faculty have full-time jobs, but for years, that group of of people who were active in the committees drove faculty development programming for the College of Medicine. Now, there's a great deal more faculty development that goes on within departments across all five colleges, but the Women's Caucus continues to uh, be an innovative group of people who have good ideas, some of which have to do with policies. Our uh, parental leave policy, for example, is certainly being driven and supported by that group. Salary equity studies uh, are paying attention, uh, and they've, they've made real differences in the degree to which issues that influence work-life balance and salary equity are alive on this campus. So I'm very proud of that group and proud of the fact that my office still very much supports it. Other infrastructure things that we had to do at the beginning were certainly a surprise to this internist. I never expected that my first big project would be to get a database built. Gosh, databases, that, that's not my thing. But it certainly became an important part uh, because Dr. Reese said, um, quietly, Jan, don't make this too well known, but we're having trouble actually counting the number of faculty we have on each of our academic pathways. (laughs) The reason was that there used to be a database and it was maintained, sort of, by two very well intended uh, executive assistants, but they weren't well coordinated. And so Dr. Reese discovered uh, when he submitted a report to the AAMC, got a report back from the people in Herschel Andrews' office and said, Dr. Reese, have you really had a 20% change in the number of clinical educators over the past year. Oh, whoops. And he went investigating and discovered that the old database wasn't being fully accurately maintained. Oh and assume you have a database that isn't, if every field isn't trustworthy, none of it's trustworthy. Right. So basically my first infrastructure task was to convene a group of stakeholders and decide what we needed in a faculty database. So it was a wonderful way to get started. I met people from all over the college and wonderful partners in our IT department. So over the course of the last 17 years, we've built or modified four databases that I think of as the the basic infrastructure tools that help automate many administrative processes. Mm-hmm. You know, processes need to be updated, refreshed, and then you rebuild the parts of the database that support them. But it's certainly helped enormously with recruiting and hiring, generating uniform and 
and comprehensive offer letters. That's one of our databases. The second is the faculty database that was my um, where I cut my teeth in getting to know this place, holding faculty data about appointment records and appointment uh, changes when people are promoted, when um, if secondary appointments are rendered or if honorific appointments are bestowed on faculty. All that needs to be in an accurate place that you can draw upon. We've then built a promotion and tenure database that I'm extremely proud of. Many of our colleagues who will hear this podcast know Emily Freeman. She's my director in this office, uh, both my right and left hand times. Uh, Emily had supported the promotion and tenure committee for a couple of years when we still required paper packets in three ring binders. Each faculty member had to submit 18 of them. It was literally backbreaking to transport all those if we had six people requesting tenure in one year. Um, So Emily had a better idea. Uh, She designed the backbone of database that now is being, we're in its, I think, 10th year for the College of Medicine and our College of Health Professions and College of Nursing are adopting it. So, so, so did you transition away from paper 10 years ago? Yes. Oh, uh, this is hysterical to me. And I probably shouldn't say it too loudly, so I'll whisper it. Hopkins just moved from paper to electronic for being promoted to the professor level last year. <laughs> Congratulations. I know. <laughs> oh, and, and still there's elements of this online version that... God bless them. Some uh, members of our team print off screenshots of the electronic version of the package. Oh, it's maddening. Progress is being made, right? Yes, we're getting we're getting there. So I go on and on about databases. I, I because I think of them as part of the infrastructure and the main brains of what our faculty affairs office does. Very interesting, special projects along the way. Yeah. Projects to support professionalism. Now uh, we have we've created uh, an executive search group, uh, thanks to lessons from our colleagues at Indiana I was University. Say Mary Dankoski, she talked about there. that. Is fantastic that program there. It is fantastic, and we are her students, and oh, it's yes. making a huge difference here as well. Um, that now has a life of its own. Uh, my successor as the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs in our College of Medicine is Eric Macias, getting to be known by colleagues in the GFA. He is focusing a great deal of energy on burnout and well-being, so that becomes a special project of the office. Um, since we became the Faculty Center, we've also started supporting our emeritus faculty. That seems like an idea that should have been rich and and tapped 20 years ago. Certainly many places do it, but we just came to the idea about three years ago that here are people who have really given their all to their respective college for years and years. That's what's required to be given the honorific title of emeritus, and we weren't reconvening them. Right. So my provost, a wonderful woman named Stephanie Gardner, one day said, Jan, why don't we get these people together? looked at each other and said, yeah, really, where have we been? Why haven't we been doing that? So for the past three years, we invite every faculty member. It's about 120 people. Not all of them are in Little Rock. 
Um, but about somewhere between 30 and 50 of them come to lunch twice a year. Wow. Oh. It's, been, it's been terrific. They enjoy visiting with each other. Um, Dr. Gardner gives them an update on what's going on on the campus. And then they've been a think tank for ideas for what the faculty ought to be about. Hmm. They've created a, a working subcommittee, uh, a better name, but for until they think of the better name, it's the subcommittee dedicated to helping faculty retire well. I love it. Yeah. Isn't that great? They've, they've created a seminar series that is delivered once a month from September through May. Uh, it has a kind of waltz rhythm. The f- one, two, three, one, two, three, they're there are nine given in the course of the year. The first is about it, the emotional intelligence of, of getting ready to retire, really ready to live the good life. The second is about uh, benefits and one's financial planning. And the third is about health insurance, which we know is way too complicated in this country. Right. And so there's a topic uh, related to each of those three pillars is presented every month, uh, well, one a month, uh, nine presentations in the course of the year. They started last year, and they're about to begin their second year of this series. The um, first was attended by 50 people, the second by 80. So I I think we tapped uh, an unmet need. That's right. At Hopkins, two years ago, we started uh, the Academy. It's a retirees uh, from school medicine, nursing, and public health. And we have about a hundred members of the academy and folks can, once they retire, join and be recognized as an academy member. And they can also have a special status and get a small stipend uh, for continuing participation and involvement and engagement with the institute institution. And then they also have formed like five or six subcommittees. So you are exactly right that there is a wealth of expertise that I think it, 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 uh, it's a win for both sides, for the people who yes. are thinking about retiring, pre-retirees and the newly retired who don't, they're not ready to disengage. I mean, retirement is no longer that, you know, rocking chair golfing uh, model, especially for academics. They need that intellectual life and, and engagement. And so providing our faculty members' opportunities to stay involved and contribute also helps junior faculty and helps us and administrators and, uh, as you say, think tank. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's a win for everyone. So you're exactly right. It just takes a little bit of um, an idea and for someone to decide to do it and own it and get it going. And they, they're self-starters. They know what to do. They know the culture. Their peers then, you know, they look at them as they're credible because they've been there. They're speaking from experience. So it's just, it's just a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful thing to happen. So I'm glad you're doing it. We're doing it now. And the population's getting older, as as we all know. So we really need to get more of us um, engaged on this. So I hope at the GFA moving forward, we'll see more and more things about taking care of our late career faculty members. Yes, indeed. Okay, the other uh, thing that occurred to me that is core to the office is policy work. Mm. Um, that... Uh, some of it is drafting new policy, and some is keeping old policies refreshed. Uh, when I think back about the big ones that that I've had the pleasure of working on, um, 
the, the magnum opus was a revision of our promotion and tenure document in the College of Medicine back in 2009. That was um, <clears throat> um, truly a, a big endeavor, and I couldn't have done it without lots of conversations with colleagues at the GFA who had gone through that work previously. Um, I knew the need for that work uh, because when I tried to read the College of Medicine's promotion and tenure document, I thought I needed a Rosetta to understand it. Uh, it just wasn't clear as to what the criteria were for each pathway. Yeah. And um, so we went about verifying it. Uh, I think that uh, the process that my dean recommended was brilliant. Um, so we, we can talk about that if you'd like. Yeah, I'd love uh, to hear Hear about that. The, um, our, our college has four main uh, three of which carry tenure, um, basic scientists, clinical scientists, clinical educators, and then a non-tenure pathway that's titled clinical attendings. And the, the, um, Dean Pfizer, who had been a promotion and tenure committee member and a department before she became dean, understood deeply why the document had to be revised. Uh, it, it was such that, that people tried their best to understand the criteria, and because they weren't crystal clear, um, people had their own interpretations. And Kim, if you've had the experience I have, faculty are right. Right, Faculty members are just right. Their interpretation is right. That's how we're wired, you know? And so if you have 1,500 people with slightly different interpretations, it's a recipe for chaos. Exactly. She gets unfairness. And uh, if a promotion and your document is about anything, it's the guidelines for being as fair and objective as you can be in conferring the highest academic rewards for hard work. So we had to start over. Her process was to appoint three subcommittees to look at criteria for the pathways that carried tenure. It just happens that our university policy says that only tenured faculty members may participate in promotion and tenure committees. So there there wasn't a voice of our clinical attendings in the design but clinical educators know a great deal about the life of clinical attendings. Their their lives are similar. So those were the three committees. And I was charged with helping the committees understand where the P&T committee would get stuck. What were the areas that needed clarification? Mm. Um, so that started with uh, basically 16 questions posed to the three subcommittees. If If you all can answer these 16 questions and come out with criteria in a tabulated that so that you can look across a page. Here's what it takes to be appointed at or promoted to assistant professor. Here's what it takes to be appointed at or promoted to associate. And here's what it takes to be appointed at or promoted to professor. Um, your work is done. It took a year and a half. Um, what was really key was being very careful about who was appointed to those subcommittees. They needed to be people who cared about faculty and who understood the importance of, of clarity about criteria. And the people who served as the chairs of each subcommittee were also very critical appointments, smart, organized, clear-thinking people. Mm. My so, staff and I um, 
served as the note takers in their committee meetings, and then I got to glue it together in one document. Now, who who chose the membership of the subcommittees and then the chairs of those subcommittees, and who wrote those 16 questions? Uh, the dean and I uh, appointed the subcommittees and the chairs. Okay. Uh, both of us knew a great many of the faculty at that point. Uh, Dr. Pfizer knew them better than I. I had only been on board for four years at that point. Um, and then... Um, the 16 questions were ones that I composed having listened in to the promotion and tenure for two years, listening to where they had trouble interpreting the, the current guidelines. Got it. And that speaks to the importance of having us, dean folks, at the level of these P&T committees. I've heard that from a number of people we've talked uh, um, talked to in the podcast here who who sit in on those meetings and that they see firsthand where uh, those questions arise and the debates and, and perhaps, you know, lack of clarity. So I, I as well as being there reminding the subcommittee members or the, the P&T committee members of um, accountability, you know, accountability to, mm-hmm. to the gold and at Hopkins we have called the gold book uh, so, you know, adhering to the Bible, what does the, what does the mm-hmm. letter of the law say versus some personal or subjective interpretation or inconsistent application of criteria? So I, I think this is great that it's another example of that um, involvement and engagement at that a very, very important step. And if you're mm-hmm. not, if we're not at that table or in that room, I think sometimes things can go, you know, um, higgledy-piggledy pretty quick. They can. I've appreciated that that my role, uh, both in in rewriting the document, which then had to go through a formal approval step, vetted to the entire faculty, and then the dean, provost, chancellor, and president of the university. So lots of people looking at the document, uh, I think, made for a a very good one. Um, In administrating it thereafter, I think it's been enormously helpful that I served as the ex officio uh, executive secretary to the P&T committee. Mm. Dr. Macias as my successor does now. So no votes. You know, we're, we're not there right. as administrators telling senior faculty members how to vote or what to do, but rather being a consistent voice of what the policy says. Right. And that the, you know, the most important conversations aren't over the black or white situations, but it's the gray zone mm-hmm. of when you need smart members of the promotion and tenure committee really having a good, thoughtful discussion about why it's gray for yeah. a particular faculty member. There, gosh, well, I, I, you know, it's be hard pressed for anybody to kind of argue that that's not one of the core functions that we should be doing in faculty affairs and faculty development is advocating for clear, transparent equitable, fair promotion. That That's vital. I love it. That's great. Mm-hmm. Would Was anyone from your P&T committee also serving on those three subcommittees for that process or they were kept separate? I mean, did you, did you appoint anyone to those exploratory subcommittees looking at the criteria who had also already been on the promotions? 
There were some people. There were 10 members of each subcommittee, and a few of them were former members of the College Promotion and Tenure Committee. So they, they had had experience tussling with the old document. Good. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, and then how did you communicate those changes to your faculty? Did you have a campaign, a marketing campaign, or is it something that you simply were able to publish these documents and put them online, email, communicate with department chairs? How did that message get out, and how is the message um, kept foremost in people's minds so they, they are very clear on what what's what? That's a great question, Kim. Like any important policy, you probably cannot over-communicate about it. Um, so faculty were made aware of the revisions because it was brought before two all-college faculty meetings. I don't know about Hopkins, but here that the potential is 1,500 people and perhaps 200 people are actually able and willing to come to the meeting. So that gets you some um, face time with important faculty members, but not everybody. So faculty actually had to vote approval of the policy, so they were made aware of it in advance of those faculty votes. After that, the deepest teaching was to department chairs, since mm-hmm. chairs have, have a very vital role in, in being sure they offer appointment the appropriate rank at the time of hire and also support existing faculty when they're ready to ask for promotion and tenure. So uh, a, a full meeting of the Council of Department Chairs was devoted to looking at the high points of the new document. Yeah. I was available to to speak with department chairs at any time they wanted uh, to to be sure that they uh, were understanding the document, answering their questions. And then probably the most important teaching happened every spring. Uh, we do a series of promotion and tenure workshops for faculty, the whole faculty of each college. Uh, we encourage new faculty members to go early on in their first or second year of appointment just to understand what this thing called promotion and tenure is all about. We definitely urge people to attend a workshop, pathway-specific workshop, then a workshop dedicated to how they build a good packet. So two workshops the spring of the year that you're going to go up in the fall. And it's in those workshops that the, they begin and end with saying, thou shalt read the document. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, read the promotion tenure document. And furthermore, you can't succeed at this if you don't read the document. Yeah. <laughs> it's tedious. And the document itself, I'm, I'm the first to say it's dry as toast. Yeah. Not not interesting, but you can't intuit the rules. Yeah. So we, we uh, urge people to read it and then to come talk with me or members of our staff if they have questions. Now, now two things. So very clear what you said, that it's so important that our department chairs understand and are our conduits and our influencers and can sometimes be the bottlenecks for us. So I, I get that. Does each of your departments have an internal promotions review committee? Because then yes. I'm thinking that there's now another potential layer of communication dissemination that could be challenged if you're interacting with the department chairs who then do or do not and to what degree they educate their um, their committees at their own level. 
And then I can't remember the second thing I was going to ask you. Um, oh, you mentioned that the faculty, when, you said when they go up in the fall for promotion. Mm -hmm. I, it made me curious. Do you have a, a, a one time a year or a couple times a year when people can be promoted? Or like at Hopkins, people just go up randomly whenever. But I do know there are some schools who say that there's like a, a clock and a calendar that you can only submit your packets during this time or that time. We are one of those schools. Uh, only once a year may existing faculty members request promotion and tenure. Uh -huh. The committee meets once a year for that one very uh, dedicated long weekend in November. Oh, wow. The committee meets electronically using one of our databases to approve requests for appointments, new hires at advanced rank. So that review goes on all year long, uh, but uh, promotions for existing faculty are reviewed only once a year. Wow. And how many people are go up for promotion? Is it at all ranks that one time a year this happens? All ranks, and our numbers range somewhere between... 55 and 70 people per year. Wow. That, so that's, that sounds really efficient. I mean, a lot of work. It's like almost like grant review, mm -hmm. but at least it, you know it's happening one time a year versus this ongoing. Our committees meet um, every month except July and August. I, it's, I think this is one of those things that has evolved uh, school-specific. You know, what, what works best at one institution may not be the best fit for another, and colleague, the GFA gives us opportunities to look at how things are done differently. And sometimes it's uh, worthwhile blowing up an old process and starting over. Yeah. Love it. I, Love it. Please don't tell your colleagues at Hopkins that that was. <laughs> no, they'll never know. So what else do you want to share with us, Jan? I love this. Keep going. Two things occurred to me. I really wanted to uh, say a huge thank you on this podcast to Mary Dankowski and Megan Palmer and their colleagues. Uh, Britt Barham and more at Indiana University who started their internal executive search firm. Um, Emily Freeman and I listened to Mary and her colleagues give presentations a few times at GFA meetings and each time we heard about it, we looked at each other and said, we could doing that and we yeah. probably should. Mm -hmm. um, so I called Mary, you can't get it all in a one-hour workshop. I called Mary and asked if, if she would uh, have a long conference call and teach us. And, oh, my goodness, she was so generous, uh, big teach. Uh, so after huge lessons, uh, in the most academically generous spirit, uh, she shared templates and forms and said, you, you know, you're going to have to modify these to make them work in Arkansas, but here you go. Yeah. Mary really handed over their methodology and I love it. It is premised on making sure that you have a reproducible, fair process to give all candidates the best look at your school, because the goal is really hiring for best fit. You want the most qualified person whose, whose spirit and emotional intelligence matches the pure hiring them to lead. So uh, it, 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 her process allows both uh, the best uh, best foot for forward for your institution, giving candidates a really good look at the school, uh, giving them gracious experiences, and helping search committees do the best apples-to-apples -apples comparison they can of candidates. Uh, 
Mm. It also gives you an opportunity to teach about unconscious bias so that you have opportunities to mitigate it um, and really pay attention to um, the, the only way to make sure you're not hiring more people that look like your current faculty yeah. is to expand the pool for underrepresented minorities and for women if, if your school is focusing on enhancing diversity. And it, it really is helping us do that. So my huge thanks to colleagues at Indiana. It's, it, um, we've been at this for about a year and a half now, and we have had some great hires, and uh, our chairs and deans are appreciative. Oh, that is what a great endorsement. Yeah, both Megan and Mary, of course, have been on the podcast, and the, you know, you're really making me think that I – I need to take, you know, after this first year doing this podcast, look at best best practices in, you know, fill in the blank, because mm-hmm. you're not the first person who has, um, you know, referenced the great programming at Indiana. So I, I think I can't help but think that, you know, the next X years down the line where we have uh, new folks doing faculty affairs and faculty development, it just breaks your heart to think that they're not going to have one easy, quick place to identify who's doing what, where, and what's had the best, you know, um, outcome for this leadership program or that search firm or that departmental chair training program or policies on promotion. So I really think as a community, you know, maybe we can start, I can start by kind of going through these interviews and putting a, a best best practices in kind of a compendium, a document, because you're right. She's, um, that program is really great. And another great mm-hmm. example of the collegiality and just generosity in our family. I'm sure that would be a worthwhile gift to the GFA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The last idea I had when, when thinking about this conversation was a new one um, for us, uh, I've heard colleagues at the GFA speak about it as well, and that good, strong collaboration with human resources, if you have a human resource office that is good and willing to collaborate. Our history here is one of of a big evolution in the um, skill set of HR, and it's gotten hugely better over the past five years. And with that has... Uh, formed a, a new group that gets together once a month. Um, it's a group composed of faculty uh, affairs people, legal, uh, associate deans of finance and administration, and HR. And our work is about helping uh, largely in professionalism issues. Huh. Because, at least at the school, uh, Episodes of unprofessional behavior by oh I should I should add uh, graduate medical education also sits on this group. Um, sometimes folks get outside the guardrails of professional conduct, um, and and the ep- the events pop up. Uh, you you can't predict where they're going to show up, and it's, sometimes it first comes to the attention of HR. Sometimes first to the GME team, sometimes first to legal or faculty affairs or folks in the hospital. This is a meeting where we uh, close the door. It's a highly confidential meeting, as you can understand, but we list the issues, the, the folks that we're worried about, and figure out 
who should be conducting the investigation, who should be, who's got it, basically. Because in the past, uh, there had been examples of uh, someone uh, who'd gotten themselves outside those professionalism guardrails, and they were being investigated by different parts of the university. So um, the poor person who had had trouble was feeling like they were catching it from many sides Uh, because they were. So now we help coordinate the investigation, helps with due process, making sure that the right people are involved and we keep each other informed. So it, 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 um, I, I think it gives us a better sense of, of we're making sure we're getting the work done and not doing double work. Now, what does finance have to do with that? Only that the person who is in that associate dean spot does both administration and finance. Money doesn't come into it. It's it's uh, her administrative hat. Got it. Got it. Yeah, more people at the table, better. A lot of value. With uh, we brought our HR group to our advisory, our faculty advisory groups in the Office of Faculty Development because just months and months and months of of my hearing uh, faculty members bemoan the fact that they had a grant or received funding to do this or that and they their three four months lagged trying to hire someone and it was they weren't getting good candidates or they had a good candidate but hr wouldn't let them hire them and and i finally said well how come we don't have hr at this table and just the Mm -hmm. mere fact of inviting them to the table both sides were like the faculty had gained a new appreciation for why this is that way and then hr had a, oh, oh, now we get it. Okay. So it really mm-hmm. was just dumbfounded to think of everything comes back just down to basic communication and just hearing each other and, and dispensing with some of these assumptions we make and checking those assumptions. Absolutely. Well, I hate to bring this up, but uh, what's this um, little buzz on the street that someone may be retiring? And can you talk with us about how this happened and what you're going to do and what we're going to do? Ah, you're kind. Um, I'm going to take a big leap on February 29th, 2020. I'm going to retire. Dum-dum-dum! Now, how (laughs) you sound your usual joyful self, how did you get to this decision and how... uh, I'm sure a lot of this is in people who are very good friends of yours would say, oh, that's just typical Jan. But you, you sound like... Not like... People here at Hopkins, and I'm, and I'm a gerontologist by training, and so I'm really involved in the programming of our late career faculty members and trying to help them, as you talked about, when you're in Arkansas, the emotional intelligence of preparing for retirement. But there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty and waffling back and forth and hemming and hawing, and you sound pretty convicted in this, and you, as usual, you sound happy and joyful. So... Can you share with us how you came to the decision and why you sound so joyful about it? I, I have been doing the hemming and hawing for about a year, so um, I didn't escape that. Okay. It's just uh, behind me. Uh-huh. I think uh, two things are at play. Um, my husband and I are in our late 60s and both enjoying good health now um, and want to have some time to truly enjoy that when we're not working full-time. Mm-hmm. So that was the big attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, the big apprehensions, I think, are, are what are common to most people. I, 
for a while couldn't imagine what I would be like if I didn't walk around the halls of this place and speak with colleagues who I deeply treasure every day. So when I finally realized I could come back and uh, visit and maybe do some special projects for provost if she wants and if I want, um, that, that it's not as though I can never darken the doors of the place again. The other apprehension was, oh my gosh, what will it be like if my husband and I are home a lot at the same time? <laughs> so we, we've had a wonderful vacation this summer and, and uh, discovered we really do like each other and, and I think we'll be fine there. So it, it takes time, doesn't it, mm-hmm. to reflect on what one's done in a career, uh, whether you're ready to stop. Uh, I know, I, I don't think there is uh, a magic time for, uh, you know, dates. Uh, I do recall what uh, Kurt Calhoun told us at the GFA meeting this past summer uh, in Chicago. He was asked a question on a phone and he answered, you know, I think we all have this expiration date stamped on our back and sometimes it's hard to read. Mm. So I, I don't think I've quite hit my expiration date, but I, I certainly want to let the next generation of people with new ideas um, bring them on. So yeah. most of this is it's time to uh, figure out what when I'm not working full time and enjoy my husband and a small sailboat and grandchildren. Uh, and, and also time to say, you know, I've, I've made some big contributions. I'm proud of them. And now it's time for the next generation of really bright people to help the faculty of this place thrive. Good for you. Wow. That's very courageous of you. And, and I say that because I, I just think that so, um, it's, it's, it's sad to me when you see some people who, uh, who don't have that same courage to let go and to trust Trust the, the, trust the folks on the bench, the, the people who, mm-hmm. uh, may not do things the same way you're doing or the way you have done them, who may, yeah, may, may actually blow something up and start over. Mm-hmm. And, and to be able to let that go and with grace and dignity. And I think it's important what you, you said that you and your husband went on a vacation that you, you experiment, you try it, you try it out, mm-hmm. you go see what it would be like to spend some time here or living there or doing that. And then the courage to, once you've done that work, is it's easier to let go of something behind you if there's something in front of you to grab. You know, I think I see a, a lot of folks who they're so reticent to let go of what's behind them because they feel like they're going to plunge down into nothingness. So once you have that, the rung or the ring in front of you and you have a pretty nice grasp on it, then it is easier to, to let go of the thing behind you when there's something in front of you versus, versus this big kind of abyss of nothingness. So I applaud you for doing that work and getting there and mostly for having that courage in belief in, in your colleagues and junior people who, um, who love, who love faculty and love this work as well. And so, you know, yeah, good for you. I'm, I'm excited to hear how this, this chapter plays out for you. Well, thank you. I'm mighty curious about it. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion as usual. Uh, 
we will miss seeing you around, but I, but I like what you said, that there is um, ample opportunity to be involved with the family, and there's no reason why I can't see we would have, you know, emeritus at the GFA um, and reunions and uh, bringing, bringing you back and uh, learning from you and getting together. And so I hope we can, um, as our family grows, we can make sure that we keep track of everyone who's moved on and, and invite you back to, um, to share with us on your journeys and how things have evolved and how you can see how things are changing in our, in the GFA world too. So I think we've got a lot to look forward to, don't you? I do. Thanks so much, Kim. This has been a joy to talk to you. Thanks, Dr. Shorey. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.